This morning as we gather to worship, we, I would ask that you would turn with me to Joshua chapter 24. And if you're going to be in your pew Bibles, it'll be on page 186, but Joshua chapter 24, and we'll be reading verses 14 to 25. Joshua 24, 14 to 25. And as we read this, I would ask that you would hear this exhortation from Joshua as well as Israel's response, and that you would hear it as something of the background and the basis against which our upcoming time in Judges is going to be set. Joshua 14 to 25. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. This is God's word. It's my prayer that each one of us would so wholeheartedly commit to serving the Lord as Israel was willing to do. But I would also pray that each one of us would do so with the help of the Holy Spirit far more faithfully than Israel actually did. I ask if you would join with me in a word of prayer. O Lord our God, we come before you this morning and we come knowing that we are entering into a new series. And Lord, we pray that as we begin to read through the, the judges, your word contained therein. Lord, we ask that you would take and apply these passages, these lessons, and work them upon our hearts by your Holy Spirit. That we might be encouraged to remain faithfully tied to the foundation that you have given us. That we would not be shifted to new philosophies and things, but that we might remain firm, anchored 
the great anchor of our soul, Jesus Christ, and his word as revealed to us in Scripture. Lord, I thank you that we have a family to gather together with here today. We think of those who are not able to be among us. We think of Ed and Donna and Lorna and others who are ill and under the weather today, and we just ask that in your will that you would heal them and bring them back into our midst sooner rather than later. And Lord, we thank you that you have shown us clearly in the last weeks that you do answer such prayers, that you have answered the prayers of your people that Harry might be able to join with us again. We thank you for these things, and we glorify you and you alone that he is able to be with us and among us and worship together with us. Also, we see answer to prayer in the moisture that we see outside, and we pray that you continue to provide in that way and that you'd keep us safe as we travel to and from church and elsewhere in the coming days. And Lord, as we come to your word, as we come to the truth that you've recorded for us in Judges, that you would prepare our hearts, that we would seek and look and inspect the truths of your word, that we might have it applied to our hearts and our lives, that these words might change us, O oh Lord. Lord, we thank you for these things. We thank you for our time together in worship, and we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you know, we've now moved out of our time in Genesis 1 to 11, and we're moving into Judges. And in Genesis 1 to 11, we studied some incredibly foundational truths, truths about who God is and how he deals with man. But as we move into Judges, before we even crack that book, I first want to make a statement about Judges, and then I would ask you to join with me on kind of the first portion of our message this morning to engage with kind of a whirlwind tour of how we get from Genesis 1 to 11 to Judges. It's a pretty broad swath there. But I want to give us a heads up about the, the book of Judges. I'm sure many of you have heard it said if the Bible were ever made into a movie that it would get an R rating. And the book of Judges is about the most R-rated book of the Bible. There are things in here, in this book, that will prove to be some of the most immediately and viscerally offensive accounts to be found anywhere in Scripture. The content of the book of Judges is not for the faint of heart. The violence, the sexual immorality, the absolutely debased state of Israel by the end of the book will at times be shocking, and they should be. I would encourage you to allow what you read and what you hear in Judges. I would encourage you to maybe take some time to be reading through Judges as we work through this in the coming months. But allow those passages to, to percolate and shock you and give you some of that concern. But that's why I made the sermon series title judges when foundation, foundations shift. Because in Genesis 1 to 11, we have a lot of these 
incredible foundations that we've laid who God is, these awe-inspiring truths about God. And then in Judges, we see how as, they, as Israel departs from these truths, it takes even God's own people down a wicked road that is so dark that we might even be tempted to ignore it. There's a reason why if you take time to look up sermon series on Judges, you will more than likely just find individual sermons on Judges. Okay, we like the story of, of the, the cleaned up version of Samson or the, the nice part of the story of Gideon. But you won't see a whole lot of full series on Judges because there's a whole lot in here that is not going to be overly fun to read. And while the accounts found in Judges will be difficult to hear sometimes, we will see, Lord willing, that this account is designed to remind us and to warn us of the importance of holding to the truths and commands of God in Scripture. So as we get into Judges, we kind of gird up our loins and plunge into it, knowing, that some, of what it, knowing some of what's ahead, but also convinced that this book was recorded according to God's will. It was recorded for our good and for his glory, and also for our instruction. So that kind of disclaimer over with, we're going to engage in kind of a 60,000-foot overview of the background from Genesis 1 to 11 to Judges. Starting in Genesis 12, we see how the Old Testament takes up a focus not on really humanity as a whole, all of the descendants of Noah, but particularly with God's covenant people in Israel zeroes in on God's relationships with these Hebrew people as established through God's covenant with Abraham. If Genesis 1 to 11 can kind of be summed up by the title of like creation and fall, the next would be the account of the patriarchs. We have the accounts of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's essentially the formation of the Hebrew people, God's people in the Old Testament. And all of that ties back into the promise to Abraham that he would be made into a great nation and that his people would be given a land, hence the introduction of this concept of a promised land. Tim did a great job last week identifying for us how this promised land and this promised offspring of Abraham finds part of its fulfillment in these Old Testament stories, but not their ultimate fulfillment, not specifically with this local earthly nation and earthly lands, but a nation of saints in Christ and an eternal kingdom. But before we get and jump straight to the eternal kingdom and the eternal people, we do have to understand and make sense of the promise through the story that we have in Israel and how they have failed to take hold of an earthly kingdom, how they have failed to become an earthly people of God. So we have this period of the patriarchs that ultimately ends with Israel enslaved in Egypt. 
They remain enslaved in Egypt. They grow, they multiply, and we all know the story of Moses being sent by God to Israel and to lead the promised people out of captivity into the promised land. And along that path, we have the first thing. As soon as they get out of Egypt, we have Mount Sinai where they are given another covenant. They are given God's law at Mount Sinai. And this covenant here requires the people of Israel to follow this law as commanded by God. If they obey, then they will be blessed. If they disobey, if they refuse to follow God's laws, then they will incur punishment. Deuteronomy 28 gives a great example of this. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all of these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then the rest of another good chunk of 28 goes into a huge list of blessings that the people would receive if they remain faithful to what God has commanded them. But then in verse 15, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Likewise, the passage then goes on to detail a list of curses, punishments for failure to obey God. And then continues the exodus. And in the Exodus, we begin to see clearly some of the ramifications of this covenant, blessing and curses that are being received by Israel for their faithfulness or lack thereof. A real clear example is the barring of first Moses and the first generation of Hebrews from the promised land for their refusal to remain faithful to God and to obey his commandments people of Israel refuse to go in and take possession of the land because they're afraid. But after that first generation dies in the wilderness, under the leadership of Joshua, the Hebrews finally do go in and take possession of the promised land. They go in and we hear the story of them crossing the Jordan and Jericho and the conquest of Joshua and the Hebrew people becoming a people of Israel. And the bulk of the promised land is taken and it is distributed to the various tribes of Israel. And that passage that we read earlier from Joshua 24, that's part of Joshua's final exhortation before his death. The people are basically being sent out, okay, I'm about to die, but you still have work to do. Before we get into Judges, though, there's one other part of Joshua's exhortation that is going to be hugely important for us to read and understand. It comes from Joshua chapter 23, starting in verse 4. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. 
Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you stern warning from Joshua as to what would happen if these people did not do what they were told. So that's kind of a whirlwind tour through the era of the patriarchs and the exodus culminating in Joshua and this partial Israelite conquest of the promised land sets the tone for the period of the judges. And maybe you wouldn't get it just from initial glance at Judges, but that book of Judges stretches for some, depending on who you ask, approximately three to 400 years, where these people are in the Promised Land. And that's from the initial part of the conquest of the Promised Land, where Israel kind of has this loose hold, to the age of the kings, in approximately 1,000 B.C. when Saul is crowned the first human king of Israel. So somewhere from 1,000 B.C. back to 1,400 B.C. is where we're going to be finding ourselves in the next couple of months. But Israel, in our mind here, as we get prepared for judges, they have been set and commission. They have moved into the land, they have taken over as kind of overarching rulers, but there's still work to be done. Abraham's promise of becoming a great nation has, at least in part, been realized. They are now millions strong. They are now a great and powerful nation. Other nations are scared of them. They have won great victories. So they've partially realized this becoming a great nation. And now, this vision of a promised land, again coming from that covenant, that's been partially realized. And now the command has been given to finally drive out and utterly destroy all of the remaining Canaanites. Remember from our time in Genesis that these Canaanites are the descendants of Ham, specifically of his son Canaan, who was cursed by Noah to serve his brothers. And these Canaanites were a wicked bunch. As we have seen through our story of our account of Genesis, these people have followed the pattern that have been set for them, laid down by their forebears. They were morally bankrupt and worshipped a variety of gods, gods such as Baal and Asherah. And 
to give you an idea of what we're getting into here, what's supposed to happen in Judges is Israel's supposed to go in and remove that filth from among them. What instead happens in Judges is they move in and become Canaanized. And to become Canaanized, to become like the Canaanites, involves the worship of these Baals and Asherah, these gods that are identified with ritual sex and the sacrifice of children to their gods. These are the kinds of gods that Israel forsakes Yahweh for. These were the people that the Israelites were to drive out and to eradicate. God is using Israel to exact his justice. These people are to receive the just retribution for their rejection of God and their wickedness. It's not just a matter of Israel was told to do something and they didn't do it, so Israel gets the slap on the wrist. It's God has a plan and wants Canaanites removed and his justice done upon them, and Israel chooses instead of doing and carrying out God's commands to instead marry and intermingle and become like the ones that they were to destroy. The whole point of them driving out these nations is that they would not mix with these nations nor bow down to their gods. And Judges is the account of Israel's utter and total failure to do this. That gets us to a place where we can understand what we're leading up to in Judges. And now we're going to get into Judges, starting in Judges 1.1. If you've got a pew Bible, it's page 187. And some of these passages in Judges may be a little bit on the longer end, but it's worth it to hear them and read them and understand them because what comes from here is more important than anything I have to say anyways. So Judges 1.1, one, one, and we'll read all of chapter 1 and into 2 verse 5. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. They defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it 
and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negeb, in the low land. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was former, formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai, Hymen, and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite Moses' father-in-law went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies near the Negev, near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his, all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz, and that is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshin or its villages, or Tanakh and its vi villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites who lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Alab, or of Akzib, or of Helba, or of Aphek, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to the forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris, in Ajalon, and Shalbim. 
But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of the Akramim from Selah and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal, Gilgal to Bakim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altar, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, and they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. This is God's word. So I know that we've kind of worked our way a bit backwards to our sermon today. Normally we start with the passage we're looking at and move to kind of the exposition. But now, in the back half of the message here today, I hope you'll see where we're coming from in this passage. In Deuteronomy 20, Moses gave the command to Israel regarding the inhabitants of the promised land. In 2016, But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all of their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. You shall save nothing alive that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. And looking back at the passage that we just read from Judges 1, Remembering the commands here and the command that Joshua gave, how did Israel do? I count at least nine different instances in this one chapter of how Israel failed. Not only to drive out the Canaanite nations, but also in preserving the lives of men like Adonai Bezek or the whole family of the man from Bethel, the man who showed the clan of Joseph the way into Bethel. And as such, these remnants, even though they are now enslaved, they would become to these people a snare and a trap, a whip on their sides and thorns in their eyes, as Joshua had warned them. We see the failures of the tribes of Judah in the south, all the way up to Asher and Naphtali in the north and everywhere in between. Judah, for their part, has the most success and gets the most intention in our passage. But even Judah is not exempt from the judgment at their failure to drive out and destroy the inhabitants of this land. Again, we see Judah being more faithful than Israel. That'll be the rest of Israel. That'll be a pattern going forward. But still not perfectly faithful the lens that we're given to interpret this passage doesn't come until chapter 2. Really, chapter 1 is basically just a, 
a bullet point of Israel's failure, a bullet point of this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened and they didn't do it and they didn't do it and they didn't do it. But in chapter 2, the angel of the Lord says, and this is God speaking directly to his people, so it appears to be a theophany where God reveals himself and he appears, the angel of the Lord says, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? wonder if that what is this you have done sounds familiar to when Eve first eats of the fruit in the garden. What is this that you have done? They know what they've done. So now I will say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. It takes a theophany, God revealing himself personally to his people, for them to realize how totally and utterly they had failed. They'd become so engrossed in pursuing the goal by their own means that the words of God through Moses and Joshua have obviously fled from their mind. But as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And thus, at that low point, the cycle of the judges begins. If a firefighter is putting out a fire, he doesn't leave a persistent coal to burn, regardless of whether that coal seems particularly dangerous at the time even though it's just doing what fire does. Just so a doctor doesn't overlook a small, out-of-the-way piece of cancer in his patient. He doesn't get, that one's fine over there. No, in both cases, whether it's a firefighter or a doctor, they know that to leave any remnant, any scrap of what they have fought so hard against, the risk is a resurgence where it destroys everything that they've worked for. It will just come back and come back again stronger and be just as much of a problem. And God had warned his people that this would happen. He warned them, if you don't wipe this people out, you are going to end up being ensnared and wrapped up in all of the same problems and all of the same judgment that I'm pouring out on these people. That's going to become your cup to drink, because you have become like them. God warns them that this is coming. And then they come up with all these excuses. Well, these people had iron chariots, so we couldn't drive them out of there because they had iron chariots. Well, that person, he, he helped us get into the city, so we'll let him live. Well, that person, he had all those kings with the toes and thumbs cut off, so we'll bring him and use him as an example. Well, all of these people, we're going to enslave them and use them to, as slave labor, and they'll make us rich. But regardless of their excuses, they left these remnants in direct contravention of God's command. And for that, instead of experiencing God's blessing, where they get to experience what it's like to live in the land with the land flowing with milk and honey, with peace. 
they are now condemned to an entire history of the people of Israel of constant war from the second they get into the promised land. All of these people become thorns in their sides. But what about us this morning? We have not been commanded go and eradicate X people or X wicked nation. But if you look in Scripture, we have a pile of binding commandments upon us as God's people. The Bible, particularly in the New Testament, gives us ample direction as how a believer ought to live. How a believer is commanded by God to live as well as warnings of what will happen if we refuse to do so. Ephesians 4, Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirits of your minds. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We have been commanded to live in such a way. And it is not enough for a person. It is not enough for a Christian. It is not enough for me or for you to just appear to obey. It is not enough for us just to obey halfway. As James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. All of the spiral of wickedness, the ongoing plague of Canaanite influence that we're going to see throughout Judges, and Judges is one great big repeating and devolving cycle it all comes back to this failure of the Israelites to obey God fully on the part of this first generation after Joshua they are sent in wipe out these people take a hold of this land and I will bless you and I will prosper you and you will be strong in the land and this will be your land and I will be your God and you will be my people and they refuse to do so as an ongoing picture for us today, the Old Testament continues to build a case that we cannot in our own strength attain to the kind of sinlessness and holy living that God has required. And it is for that reason that God made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ has accomplished what we and all of those men and women from the beginning of history could not not only did he avoid sin, but he also attained on our behalf the righteous standard of which we have all fallen short. As we close here this morning, first I would have us take both from the kind of scriptural background and overview and from this first chapter here in Judges, take away the deadly seriousness of not only following God's commandments, but following them completely and to the letter. 
There is blessing for obedience and curse that awaits those who reject God and refuse to follow his commandments. And it is easy for us, particularly in the new covenant, to write that part off because we can say Jesus did it for us. Praise God that Jesus did it for us. Amen? (laughs) Praise God that Jesus did it for us, but that doesn't mean we give up on following the commandments. We have been commanded to do this, and we are to obey. Period. And not just obey halfway, not just obey when we feel like it, not just obey the ones that are easiest for us to do, but to do what he has told us to do. And Judges gives us ample evidence of the deadly seriousness that we obey the commandments of God as God's people. Second, I want us to, I want to point out for us that it wasn't until too late, until the angel of the Lord came and had spoken judgment against Israel, that Israel finally determined to return to the Lord. Do you remember what happened the first time around trying to take the promised land? The spies go in and then they come back and they say, well, there's all these big people and they're scary and they're like, okay, no, we're going back to Egypt. And then they're cursed to wander in Egypt and then Israel goes, okay, fine, we'll go in and take the land now. And Moses says, no, no, don't do that. God's already cast judgment on you and they decide to go in and try it anyways and they get horribly defeated. It wasn't until too late that Israel determined to return to the Lord. And how many people that we know either have already done this or are in danger of doing it? How many of the people that we know have said, I'll square things up with God when I get closer to? Closer to might be before you leave church today. Closer to might be before you get home this afternoon. There is no squaring up with God closer to because you don't know when God is going to call you from this earth. Don't be the people that wait until too late. Matthew 19 and 17, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. 1 John 2, 3, by this we can be sure that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. James 2.17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It is our responsibility, if we are in Christ, to both know and to follow his commandments. And we don't do that to earn our salvation. Because you can never do it well enough to earn your salvation. We obey because we love the God who has commanded us to do it, who has done it on our behalf we would show by our actions that the fruit of faith is alive and well within us. To display that we are persevering unto the end in faith. We don't obey because we're just scared that we might lose our salvation. We obey because we know what God has done and we are grateful to him for it. And because he has commanded it and he is our Lord. So don't wait until it is too late, until the judgment is cast, to take seriously the call to act upon your faith. And finally, 
we get to that pivot point that we can glorify God that it is indeed not upon our ability to keep God's commandments that our hope is established. God made this conditional covenant through Moses with the people of Israel. If you obey my law, you will be blessed. If you reject my law, you will be cursed. Have any one of us obeyed God's laws? The answer is no. We do not deserve, according to God's law, we do not deserve to be blessed. We deserve the curse and the wrath of God. But it is not on your ability to obey that your hope is established. Favorite hymn, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Praise God that according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is deadly serious that we obey the commandments given to us. But it's also deadly serious that we don't start idolizing, as the Pharisees did, the commandments themselves. The commandments are there to point us towards our dependence upon God. The rules that people like to get on Christians, oh, your Bible's just a book of rules that you have to do stuff for God. Those rules are there to point us towards God. God has told us, do this, and in doing this, you will see me, you will know me, you will follow me. We absolutely need to obey God's commandments. We absolutely need to understand that those commandments are there to point us to God and ultimately to make us yearn for the saving work of Christ when we realize we can't do it ourselves. So as we come into Judges, as we move through Judges over the next few months, there is going to be a lot of darkness. There's going to be a lot of heaviness and weight of how could that happen? Even take a look at the beginning. These people are being sent in to totally eradicate a people group. How could that even happen? But all of this is designed to point us towards our need for Christ. And even the actions of the heroes in Judges, actions that God empowers and uses, even the actions of those judges are still going to be stained with their sin, with the canonization of Israel. So as we roll through Judges, hold to the fact that our hope is not in Judges. That's why I hate when I see those series on Judges that it's like stories of all these heroes of the faith. Heroes like Samson, who was a mass murderer and a womanizer. Stories of Gideon, who was a coward. Stories of, insert the judge here and their massive sin problem and character flaw. The story of the judges is the fact that God does use these people, God does preserve his people, but he does so on his terms and ultimately no man is good enough to save us except Christ. 
as the music team comes. Do they have a closing song? I thought they did. But let's, let's join with one another in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we come before you this morning that our salvation doesn't depend upon our ability to obey. But Lord, we also thank you that you have given us your commandments, you've given us your word, and you have expected us to obey, which is for our good and for your glory. So Lord, we ask that when we obey your commandments, that we would do so as ones who get to obey your commandments, as ones who get to glorify the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has saved us, as ones who get to obey your commandments because we love you and we would follow you and we would know you and we would become like your son Jesus. Lord, may, I, may we cling to the hope that is found in Christ and the cross and find our hope and our help in him. Lord, it is a great mercy that we are not left to our own devices to attain to the standard of holiness that is set forth in your word. And Lord, we confess that we have utterly failed. Even as Israel utterly failed in their ability to follow and obey you, we have utterly failed corporately and personally. And Lord, because we are in Christ, we can ask your forgiveness. We can confess our sins and you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins in Christ. So Lord, please forgive us for where we have failed in your commandments, where we have failed to obey you and work in us by your Holy Spirit that next time we might act in accordance with your word. And the next time, and the next time, and every time after that one. Lord, may you encourage your people. You build them up, and may you make them like Christ. Praise things in Jesus' name.